nomination uh, be a guide for, for me and for others is wonderful. It's a real testimony that it comes from the leadership down, uh, what he's done. So here is, I'll just brag, here is the head of church planting in the United States, Ted Powers, and uh, a great guy that even though he loves the Wolverines and the Cubs, we'll let him come here to Wisconsin. So Ted Powers. And the Bears. And <laughs> Just had to do that. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Great to be with you all. Uh, I always find it so much fun uh, to go to a place here like Appleton uh, to kind of meet the people and see the faces and see where you meet and everything else uh, because we have been tracking with you uh, over the course of these years. We have been praying uh, for you, for Dan and Aaron, their family, and now for all of you. And it's good to know who we're praying for uh, in that regard. And really excited, very encouraged by everything that we're hearing from Appleton, on Wisconsin, everything. It really is uh, great. Uh, as Dan mentioned, we're uh, in Chicago. Our denominational offices are in Atlanta, so a lot of people think we're in Atlanta. But my wife, Ann, and I moved to Chicago some uh, 30 plus years ago. We were raised in Michigan, grads at the University of Michigan uh, there, and uh, we came to Chicago, and we've just been involved in church planting uh, ever since. We've been involved in multiple uh, church starts and daughter churches, uh, that kind of thing, churches in the cities, churches in the suburbs, and then after a while, we started to wear the hat of Midwest uh, regional coordinator, so started to focus a lot on the Midwest there, and over the last 16 years have been in this role, church planting coordinator uh, for uh, PCA. So church planting has been our lives. Uh, it, this is something that Anna and I do together. Uh, she works full-time with me, whether it's been in planting these churches or now as a sort of an administrative right hand uh, to me. We've done this together over the course of the years. We have one daughter, Elizabeth, uh, who uh, was raised in church planning context, a recent grad of Wheaton College, uh, is now a school music teacher in the public school system uh, there. But our, our sense of how much church planning has been our lives, I just shared this with the Presbytery yesterday, uh, was from our daughter Liz. Um, because several years ago, we were driving near our home. Um, this is before she, I think she was just uh, barely in high school, actually. And she pointed to this building and she said, so, so dad, what? What is that building? I said, honey, what are you talking about? I said, that's a church. She goes, oh, okay. What do they use it for? And it just dawned on my wife and I, this kid has been raised in America, never been in a church building uh, her whole life, and didn't even know what they were uh, type of thing, because our whole experience has been kind of like this. Uh, Community buildings, gymnasiums, storefronts. Uh, things of that uh, that nature, and so we were actually kind of pleased because her her sense of the church uh, is well, believers just gather wherever they can gather, right? Uh, I mean, it isn't tied to a building. We're like, well, actually, most eventually do kind of get a building, but still, yeah, you got the right idea uh, about what church is. That's kind of why I'm excited for you all because you're part of something really great that's going on. Uh, not only here in Appleton and in Wisconsin, but really around North America. I, I tell people I've really got the best job in the whole world. If for no other reason uh, that I get this ringside seat to see what Jesus is doing to build his church, 
Uh, he's still doing it. He said he would do it 2,000 years ago, that not even the gates of hell would stop him from building his church, and he still is. And every single day, I get to hear uh, from different church planters and churches that are being started, uh, how God is at work, and people who are coming to know Christ, uh, lives that are being impacted, families being changed, communities being impacted, prayers being answered. It really is great. We're seeing some 50 plus churches started uh, every year in the PCA. Uh, and so that is really encouraging that about basically once a week, somebody is launching somewhere uh, in some city, community, rural area, town, campus community, whatever it might be. And so it really is a wonderful thing. And you guys are a part of that movement. And that's what makes me both grateful for you and excited for you at the same time. Now, over the course of the years, there have been a couple of passages that have really impressed themselves upon me and really gone a long way uh, to shaping our, our, our vision and practice of what we do in church planting. And they're the ones that are printed right here uh, in your, your bulletins and want to draw your attention uh, to those. These two texts are held together by the common theme of the harvest. The first is in John 4, and we're just going to read 31 through 37. It's, a, it's part of a larger story that's going on where Jesus has been interacting with this, what they call woman at the well, uh, or the Samaritan woman. Uh, and he has been interacting with her, sharing with her the good news of life, this sort of thing. In the meantime, the disciples have gone off looking for food somewhere. So they've they got their takeout, they brought it back. Uh, here, and this is kind of where the story picks up uh, with verse uh, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, that is Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? You know, these guys are usually slow on the uptake, and it's kind of evident here. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, and another reaps. And then Matthew chapter 9, also theme of the harvest here. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, please open up our hearts and minds to your word this morning. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Speak to us from the living word. Because when you speak, Lord, things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, 
that the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Boy, these two texts are so rich. There's so many things that I would love to share with you in these. And uh, Dan said I only got like an hour and a half, so I'm going to have to kind (laughs) of cut to the chase uh, here and just get to kind of the main points. Uh, And I think the main point, actually, in all of this is that Jesus wants us as his disciples to have a vision for the harvest. He wants his disciples and he wants his people now, I believe, to see the world around us through the eyes of Jesus, to see it as he sees it. Then every now and then, in the midst of all the busyness of our lives, all the really good things that are going on in life and ministry and family and this sort of thing, to just every now and then stop for a moment, pop our heads above the surface, kind of look around and see the mission field that is all around us and is so ready for the harvest. To see the needs and the opportunities that are all around us. And I think this is really important for us to do because a lot of people seem to have the idea that North America is pretty much a churched uh, continent, that America is pretty much a Christianized nation, and particularly here in the Midwest, you know, the heartland uh, of America, this sort of thing. But I just don't know that that's the case. And I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure it's not now. I'm not sure it really ever has been. And I think we can see some of this just from some of the sobering statistics that have been coming out of some of the recent studies and censuses that have been done. So, for example, we apparently live in a nation, the United States, of some 320 million people. But depending on whose statistics you want to read, on an average, at least 250 million of those people aren't going to church anywhere at any time, no matter what they might consider their backgrounds uh, to be. And so now the United States is listed as the third largest mission field in the world behind only China and India in terms of sheer numbers. You know, I look at the Midwest region, uh, what's demographically defined as the Midwest region, some 70 million people, uh, over 50 million of whom aren't going to church uh, at any time, uh, anywhere. Look at Wisconsin, 5.8 million people uh, there. Almost 5 million of them aren't going to church at any point in time, anywhere. You look at the greater Appleton area as you approach 400,000 people and 330,000 or more are going to church anywhere at any point in time. Jesus, I think, is telling us, stop, stop for just a moment. Look around. You are in the midst of a very large and very needy mission field. We can look at it this way. A number of years ago, uh, back, well, we'll all go back to 1900. At that point in time, there were 27 churches in America for every 10,000 people. By 1950, after the war and everything else, we were actually shrank to 17 churches for every 10,000 people. By the year 2000, we were down to 11 churches for every 10,000 people. Today, we're at eight churches for every 10,000 people. And we can look at this through a number of grids. And this is why, even though we're starting some you know, one church a week, 50, 55 churches a year, um, 
I still get five or six contacts every single week from people asking for a church to be started in their community because they cannot find a Bible-believing church anywhere. So you can do your own arithmetic. If we're planning one a week and I'm getting five or six requests a week from people, 40 adults in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, five families in Terre Haute, uh, Indiana. I mean, it just goes on and on and on of folks who are looking for a church plant. The needs are great. The harvest is plentiful. The challenge is that the laborers are few. And we can compare what the needs here against even what's going on in the world. Um, I mean, really, almost every other place in the world, the church is exploding, actually. Uh, even in China that uh, Dan was praying for, and those harsh realities, and yet the church in China over the last 10 to 15 years especially is exploding. Uh, the church is well past 200 million uh, now in, in China, past more than doubling uh, the church uh, in the United States. You look at the continent of Africa, and a number of years ago, uh, they were calling it the African Pentecost because 16,000 people a day we're becoming believers. But that is dwarfed now by what's going on currently uh, in, in India, where 35,000 people a day are becoming believers in what is seen as one of the greatest Christian missionary movements in the history uh, of the world. This is going on and on. You look at Indonesia, the largest Muslim uh, country in the world, and the church there is 40 million people. Uh, there. And this goes on and on. There's only one place in the world where the church is actually shrinking against the population. Even Europe seems to have hit bottom and is rebounding uh, at this point in time. So there's only one country in the world where the church is actually shrinking against the population. And I'm sure you can guess who that, that is. It, it's the United States uh, here. The only place where that is happening. Now add to all of this, this amazing picture the wonderful diversity that God is bringing into all of our cities, towns, villages, schools, wherever. God is literally bringing the nations to us. Since the year 2004, every single people group who has a recognized demographic presence by the United Nations in the world now has a recognized demographic presence within the bounds of one country, uh, the United States. I mean, literally, the, the going of the Great Commission has never been easier or cheaper uh, or more compelling uh, than it is now because God has literally brought into our schools and our neighborhoods, our towns and villages, people from all the different nations of the world. And the two groups of people that are seeing the, by far and away the greatest conversion rates uh, in America right now are Iraqis and Nepalese who just seem to be coming to, to Christ uh, in droves. This is the mission field in which we live. And many of these people are from nations uh, that are virtually unreachable uh, by people who might live there. It's against the law. Uh, and because this mission field is so great here in America, there are far more missionaries now being sent to the states from other countries than we send to the world. I think the United States, the church in America, tends to have a pretty patronizing view to be honest with you, of the rest of the world. But that's not the way the rest of the world looks at it. They look at the United States and they get concerned. And so they are coming in droves from Nigeria, from Brazil, from South Korea, from Singapore, from Germany. You name it, they're coming. 
One of the things I, I, I do, I travel a lot. I get to a lot of places. Uh, and I end up hopping into a lot of different uh, cabs. And it seems like whenever I jump into a, a cab, the, the driver's from another part of the world. So I like to talk to them, get to know where they're from, a little bit why they're here, blah, blah, blah. And so I was in D.C. Uh, we had planted several churches, even right on Capitol Hill. And so I uh, jumped in the cab, was going to my meeting, and I started to talk to the driver. I said, so, uh, where are you from? He says, I'm from Ghana. I said, oh, okay, that's great. What brings you to the States? He says, I'm a church planter. I'm like, <laughs> really? Wow. Um, why are you here? Because we send missionaries to places like Ghana all the time. Well, he went on for the 20 minutes we were in the cab, and he had almost like a prepared diatribe. Uh, that he gave me. And he said, you know, I have been sent here to America because we all seem to get in the rest of the world what you all don't get in America. The American church doesn't seem to get it. That is, is that the church is going downhill really fast. And if you go down, you're taking all of us with you because you're still the most influential people on the face of the earth. So I, like many others like me, have been sent here to start churches. And then he said, I've also been sent here, like many others, to plant churches, to reach people you apparently don't care anything about. And I was like, uh-oh, I know exactly what you mean. But of course, I had to ask him, what do you mean? And so he went on. He says, well, just look around you all the time. All these different people from all over the, all over the world that are here, all around you all the time, but are they, are they in your churches? No. So apparently you don't care. So I have been sent here to reach people you don't care anything about. I found that a very sobering conversation, actually. A very, I, I've had many others like that. We had a guy come through assessment, right after you all came through assessment, Shibu Uman uh, from India. And I asked him, why are you here? Why aren't you planting churches in India? He told me, it's, it must be a prepared speech out there, because he told me pretty much uh, the same sort of things that are there. Again, the doors are open. God, there is unprecedented need and opportunity right outside our doors. And like I said, many times these are people who are in their own home country are virtually unreachable because it's against the law to even engage them with the gospel. This came home to me a number of years ago. We had established a, um, a mission. Uh, I built a relationship with the mosque in a Villa Park in Chicago. And at the time, the third largest mosque in America. And I spent time getting to know the director of the institute, the imam, and other leaders there, just building relationships with them. And then we started something that I'd heard had been started other places. It was, uh, we had this kind of Friday night gathering for meetings for better understanding. And we'd have this agreed upon topic and they would speak on it from an Islamic point of view. And then usually me, sometimes somebody else would speak on it from a Christian point of view, which meant for six years, once a month, I got to preach the gospel in a mosque, which was fun. And they eventually brought it to an end because, well, people were coming to Christ. So they stopped it, basically. But the point of the matter is, at the end of one of those meetings, this gentleman came forward. Uh, he's from Pakistan. And he said, this is all very interesting. I'm kind of new to these meetings, and I've never really heard this before, but I need to tell you that if we were back in my own home country, I'd have to slit your throat. I'm like, oh, wow. Man, yeah, well, what do you say? I mean, go in peace, you know, something, I don't know. <laughs> go like that. But the point of the matter is, I thought to myself, you can't. Not here. Not now. 
it just hit me, this un, not just unprecedented opportunity, but this compelling responsibility that we have as the people of God, not just to look overseas, which we do need to do, but to stop for a moment, lift up your eyes, see that the fields right outside your door, right across the street, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, are just ripe for the harvest. This is what I believe Jesus is calling us to do. It's really the only command in, these, in this, this text here. Um, it's, a, it's the fact that we need to lift up our eyes and see the community of Appleton, to see the state of Wisconsin, to see the United States through the eyes of Jesus. And we need to study for that. We need to pray about that. And we need to have a compelling sense of what that mission and vision is. I believe that that's why Jesus came that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe this is why Mission to North America exists that I represent. I believe that's why this church is here so that we can be a part of what God is doing in this world. And it starts with being a people who lift up our eyes with great intentionality and to see the mission field that is around us and have a vision for the harvest. But it doesn't stop there. I think we need to also have, along with this, a heart for the harvest. And this is where I look at that Matthew 9 text, where it says that Jesus, in the midst of all of his busyness, teaching the gospel, preaching in synagogues, healing disease. I mean, this guy was busy. And he stopped. And he just started looking around. And he saw people. Now, one thing about living in a big metro area like Chicago, and it's true here too, I know, is that there are lots of malls. And there are at least five or six shopping malls within 15, 20-minute drive of our home, and it delights Anne and Elizabeth to no end. But the fact of the matter is, I hate shopping malls. And when I go into a shopping mall, I am instantly tired and bored. <laughs> and my legs hurt, and my feet hurt, and I just want to go home. So I end up sitting down somewhere, you know, where husbands can be easily retrieved, and I get to do what I really do like to do, which is to watch people. Whether it's an airport or a mall or a city street or whatever, I like to look at people. I see all these people going by, all these different nationalities, all these different backgrounds, all these different shapes and sizes and hairstyles and hair colors, and, and you name it, young and old, you know, you see... You know, these old people who are walking in the mall because it's snowy and cold. They got to go somewhere and get exercise, so they do. Uh, you see young moms, you know, with kids in tow because, again, somewhere you got to go. It's safe, contained, warm, dry, whatever. You see the mall rats, you know, the teenagers, as we call them. They're, they're walking around in clusters. Usually the girls are in front, the boys a little behind. Lots of giggling stuff going on and, and whatever. I mean, just all these different people. Um, and you see the hairstyles and the clothing styles and you start thinking about them. And as I look at these people, I, I start thinking, man, you know, what does she see in him? You know, or, or just anything. I mean, a lot of thoughts are, are coming to my head, but then also the more spiritual, pastoral thoughts begin to pop in. And I start thinking, I wonder if life is turning out for them the way they expected it to. I wonder what it is that they're really dealing with back in their homes, their neighborhoods, their families, 
their jobs, what they're like, this sort of thing. I wonder what's going on. And basically, I come to the, after a hundred years of pastoral ministry now, uh, I've come to the pretty much the same conclusion that Jesus does here when he stops and he looks around. The people are a mess. The people are distressed and downcast, as he puts it, like sheep without a shepherd. Because this is what Jesus is doing in Matthew 9. He's stopping. He's looking at people. And he doesn't just see these raw statistical numbers. He sees real people with real needs. He sees below the surface into their hearts and their souls. And he concludes, they're a mess. They're distressed. They're downcast like sheep without a shepherd. He looks into our shopping malls. He looks into our homes. He looks into our churches. He looks into our schools and businesses. Everywhere he looks and he's, he sees that there are people who are harried and stressed, who are tired and troubled, who are discouraged, some to the point of despair. He sees that there are others who are anxious and afraid, lonely, angry, and bitter. He sees other people who are addicted to any number of different sorts of things. He sees people going around with broken dreams, broken hearts, broken bodies, broken lives. He sees some who feel like they're caught in bad marriages, some in bad jobs, some just feel like they're caught in a bad life. Most of all, he sees people who are lost, in need of salvation, in need of a relationship with the God who created them, whether they will admit it or not. And when he looks around and he sees all this mess that is us, what is his reaction? It's so simple and obvious, I think we run right past it when we look at texts like this. It says that he is moved to compassion. That is significant to me. He is not moved to condemnation. He is not moved to moral indignation. He is not moved to denunciation. He doesn't look at people like us or people in our lives that we're intersecting with. He does not say, hey, you made your own bed, you sleep in it. You made a bunch of bad decisions, you just live with it. You've only got yourself to blame for all your problems and troubles, this sort of thing. Do you ever see Jesus taking a posture like that? Never. He doesn't look at messed up, broken people and have those kind of reactions. Unfortunately, I think that is the kind of thing that we often hear from the church, from Christians. It's the kind of angry rhetoric and denunciations we do hear when we look around and see the mess that's in our world. But that's not the posture Jesus takes. When he sees lost, hurting, broken, messed up people, he says things like, come unto me, all you who labor heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, I know you're a mess. That's why I came. This is why the God of the universe came in human flesh and identified himself in your place, my place. He suffered the judgment that we do deserve. All the penalties of our own sin, all the brokenness, he took that upon himself. The wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on us was poured out on him. He took the bullet that we deserved. 
That's what the gospel is. That's why Jesus came. And we could just stop right there because I hope there's nobody here who won't seize the opportunity, if you haven't yet, to embrace this offer that Jesus gives, to come into our lives, forgive us, cleanse us, and make us the people he created us and is now redeeming us to be, that we might have life and have it abundantly. But then for those of us who have tasted of that, who have come to know Jesus, who have called upon him and experienced this amazing grace in our lives, once we're Christians, we have to take the same gracious response to everybody else. We can't be callous or jaded or cynical or self-righteous or judgmental or lazy or self-absorbed, but anything but compassionate, caring people compelled to action. The explosion of joy that that quote on the cover of your bulletins is all about. This is the catalyst of the cross, as some theologians call it. And so my prayer for you, how have we been praying for you over the course of these few years? Praying amongst other things that God will continue to give you a vision for the harvest, but he will be increasingly cultivating in all of you a heart for the harvest. To care about the fact that there's lost hurting, broken people who are distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd who need Jesus to save them and to transform them and to give them life. And the only way we get a heart for the harvest is when this beautiful and wonderful gospel of Jesus sinks down deep into our souls and becomes a precious treasure to each of us. And then it explodes outward in this kind of caring action. But I think we need to actually go a step further. I believe God doesn't just want us to have a vision for the harvest or a heart for the harvest. I believe he wants us as God's people to have a passion for the harvest. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. I have food to eat that you know not of. Well, Whenever somebody starts talking about food, they tend to get my attention. Um, most of us like to eat. I, I sure do. I mean, you can see that, you know, right here. Food is obviously very important to us. Uh, we can't survive without it, but it's way more than that. Uh, it plays such a role in our lives. We all have our favorite foods, whatever they might be, pizza or chocolate or whatever. I mean, food for us is way more than, I mean, we did not go, Right? I went with Dan and the girls last night to Culver's. We didn't go to Culver's last night out of a basic survival instinct. <laughs> okay? Food is for us way more than just a basic survival instinct. It's such a source of enjoyment and satisfaction for us. So when Jesus starts talking about food, he gets my attention. Because all of a sudden this is like, wow, this means something here. It's so impressive because he translates all of this desire for food into doing the will of God, the work of God here, into terms of the harvest. What he's telling us, the disciples there, what he's telling us is that the harvest is his passion. It's his food. It's what satisfies and fulfills him. It's what meets, you might say, his most basic need in life. It's his reason for getting up in the morning. It's why he does everything that he does. It's his passion for living. It's the passion of the Christ. And what he is saying here is that I would rather skip dinner, guys, with whatever it is that you brought. I would rather skip dinner than to miss the opportunity I've just had 
with people like this Samaritan woman whose life is a royal mess. But I came for people just like her who are a mess. And this is what satisfies me. This is the kind of passion that burns in his soul and must be satisfied like a hunger. And I believe it's the same passion that needs to burn in the soul of every disciple. And notice that what we're talking about here, though, when we talk about a passion for the harvest, it's different than having a heart for the harvest. A heart for the harvest is caring about lost, hurting, broken people. But having a, a passion for the harvest is having a zeal for the glory of God. It's having a zeal for the work of God, the will of God. And so we can sing songs like we sang just a few minutes ago in the service. And embedded in those songs can be statements like, Lord, we're grateful to you and I just want to do your will. I want to obey you and serve you and that sort of thing. And when, when Jesus hears those words, I think he is deeply moved by them. I think they come from the heart and he knows that uh, for us. But I think his response to us would also be, ah, boy, if you really mean that, then get involved in the harvest because that's where I am. That, if, you, if you're looking for me and you want to find me, that's where you'll find me, on the mission field, on the harvest. That's what I'm all about. That's my passion. That's my zeal. And so because it's on his agenda then, it's on our agenda. Because it's important to him, it's important for us. Because this is his zeal, it becomes our zeal. This is why he told his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And all sorts of things like that. This is what it means to follow Jesus. We can't, you cannot say you're following Jesus and not follow him into the mission field because that's where he is. And yet I think this is why so many Christians are malnourished, if we want to use the analogy of food. I think this is why so many of us are really quite hungry and even dissatisfied. I, I come across a lot of Christians, frankly, who are very dissatisfied and very bored with their faith. You know, they may be doing a lot of different sorts of things, but I think one of the reasons for that is because they are not eating of this food. And they are not engaged in the harvest. They're not seeing their faith put on the line. And they're not, as a result, seeing God do all sorts of great and wonderful things in us and through us. This is the passion of the Christ. This is the passion I, I, I pray will burn in the souls of all of us and that we need to seek and pray for because frankly, for most of us, it's just not there. And it cannot be just self-generated. I mean, it really starts by saying, okay, Lord, the fact of the matter is I don't really have that much of a heart for the, for the harvest. And I really I don't have that much of a passion for it either. Actually, it scares and intimidates me. So I'm really not there. So where does it come from? Well, it doesn't come from just kind of self-generating or trying to. You just can't do that. Nobody here today can say, oh, okay, well, I see what the Bible's saying here. So, okay, well, I'm not leaving here without a heart and a passion for the harvest. Let's just do it. Come on. Just think about it, focus on it, generate it. You can feel the tingle now. It's down. It's, it's, I mean, obviously, it's so stupid. I mean, you just can't do it. So the only way that happens is by honestly bringing this to God and saying, you know, I'm really not there. 
And I need you to press the gospel itself home into my soul and to begin to give me this kind of vision, to give me this kind of a heart, to give me this kind of a passion for the harvest. And this is what we pray for. We repent over it, we seek it, and God produces that when these three things are happening in our churches, to the degree that they characterize the lives and leadership of our churches, then we will begin to get involved in the harvest. Then we will be, and the first thing that Jesus says to do is pray. This is how you begin to know that people really are getting a vision and a heart and a passion for the harvest. Is because their first response is to fall to their knees, and you begin to pray for the people in your network of relationships, your classmates at school, your coworkers, your neighbors the people of Appleton, the people of Wisconsin, and you just begin to pray. Maybe as we're told John Knox prayed for Scotland. Uh, we're told that when John Knox showed up, began to, to, to do ministry, his prayer for years was, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. And I thought to myself, when was the last time I prayed for Chicago like that? Or prayed for this country like that? Have we prayed for Appleton and Wisconsin like that? Lord, give us this city. Give us this state or we just shrivel up and die because this is what's on the heart of our Savior. This is what's, and so this is how we pray. And we do find times in our small groups and in our session meetings and other prayer meetings where this becomes a big focus of what we pray for. Lord, open up doors where we don't even know that there's doors. Give us opportunities to love and serve people in your name. Give us the opportunity to engage them in meaningful gospel conversations and to let see us see people come to know Christ. We pray for these things because it is not a job we can do alone or in our own strength. It's not even a job Jesus sought to do by himself. When Jesus looks around and he sees all the needs and opportunities and, uh, of the people, he doesn't turn to his disciples and say, well, there they are, boys. Go get them. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. You know, there's just tons of them. You know, he, he steps back and says, guys, we need to pray. We need a lot more laborers for the harvest because there's a whole bunch of people out there, five million of them in Wisconsin alone, who don't know Jesus, who are lost apart from him. We need more labors for the harvest. Now, some of you might remember a movie from way back. I know it's dating me uh, a whole lot, but I bet you a lot of you have seen it. Um, Jaws? Yeah. Seen the movie Jaws? Yeah, a whole bunch of times. Okay, well, good. So there's this one scene uh, in Jaws where they're out in their boat, uh, the orca, I think it is, and they're out there in the water. They're looking for Mr. Jaws uh, kind of thing. He's already eaten a lot of people. Uh, kind of thing. And I think it's Sheriff Brody who's on the back of the boat and he's throwing all this chum uh, off the back. They're trying to bring, you know, this thing to the, to the surface. The other two guys are in their boat and they're just in the cabin of the boat and they're just drinking and carousing and having a really good time. And we're just kind of like watching and then all of a sudden this huge jaws comes thing out of the boat. Just out of nowhere, everybody screams, you know, the popcorn is flying. Sheriff Brody jumps off and he backs up into the cabin of the boat and the fish just goes right on back down the water. And you're like, did I really see that? It's really the first glimpse we've had of this thing. And we're all like, 
wow. And so Sheriff Brody backs up in the boat and he utters those famous words. Does anybody remember what they were? We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah, we're all sitting there in the theater like, yeah, you're gonna, that fish is going to eat that boat. You know, so, which he does. You know, spoiler alert. Whatever. <laughs> but the point of the matter is, we need a bigger boat. And it's kind of like what I hear when I hear Jesus saying, guys, there's like 5 million in Wisconsin. There's like 330,000 alone in Appleton. There's over 250 million in the United States. There's like billions in the world. We need more laborers for the harvest. We got to get the people mobilized. And this is why I think that the mindset of the church has just got to change. We cannot think of it as just business as usual that we're the local church on the street corner or whatever the case might be. The mindset of the church has to change. And we have to now think of ourselves as missionaries stationed at a mission outpost on a mission field. And we need to allocate our resources, equip and mobilize our people, and make decisions accordingly. Because that is the reality. And we seem to be having a hard time coming to grips with that. We need to mobilize our people, allocate our resources, and make decisions accordingly as the people of God. And be engaged then in this great work which you are through on Wisconsin, which is so encouraging and so exciting. But I want to let you know that we are praying for you to these ends. Praying that God will continue to cultivate in you to greater and greater degree His vision for the harvest, His heart for the harvest, His passion for the harvest, so that you are a people who are praying and working towards the harvest with whatever else it might be that you are doing as the people of God. May God grant you His grace to that end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please, as we said at the beginning, give us ears to hear. Give us minds that will understand, hearts that will embrace the truths from your word. Let us hear you speak to us today just as clearly and directly as Jesus spoke to his disciples then. May the words, may the voice of Jesus ring in our ears and in our hearts this day. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. majesty covered by your grace so free here I am knowing I'm a sinful man covered by the blood of the Lamb Greatest love of all 
is mine since you laid down your life the greatest sacrifice majesty majesty your grace has found me just as I am empty handed but alive in your hands here I am humbled by the love that you give forgiven so that I can forgive here I stand, knowing that I'm your desire, sanctified by glory and fire. Now I found the greatest love of all is mine, since you laid down your life. The greatest sacrifice Majesty Majesty 